Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew as we continue our time in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we will now consider the next passage and, and portion of Christ's sermon that, again, has wonderful riches for us to learn from and to consider here today. Matthew chapter 5. Our focus text will be verses 13 through 16, 13 through 16. Hear now the holy, the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God, written for you and for me today. You are the light, excuse me, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor... How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may he add his blessing to it. Join me once again in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this very word, these rich verses. Guide us and direct us, feed us and challenge us and grow us by your Spirit, we pray, as your word is preached and proclaimed into our ears and into our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Beloved, the the rich blessings of the living God are abundantly clear here in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in where Jesus begins in the Beatitudes and where he goes from there. Jesus pronounces blessing after blessing upon his disciples as as we are heirs to the kingdom of heaven. And it's these blessings, along with all others that God bestows in the scriptures, that are counter both the world and counter our flesh. It's these blessings and, and their rewards that set kingdom citizens apart from the rest. And as we've seen in the Beatitudes, God blessed his disciples to have both spirit-wrought godliness in both character and action. And therefore, we're both set apart and called to live differently than the world. And as we consider the Beatitudes as a whole, we've seen a collage of intentionally organized fruit of the Spirit. Remember how Christ began in making his blessing known to the humble, to those who were with godly sorrow, to the meek or the gentle, and to the pure in heart. Though we can look at these particular fruits and see them as more godly character traits of the Christian, in many ways, they too have external, outward impact, like the merciful, like those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, like the peacemakers, 
and like the persecuted. For one's humility, beloved, will be seen and affect how they live. The one who sincerely sorrows for their sin indeed will be comforted, and their walk will be much different than those who don't. The gentleness of one is evident when they interact with others. The inward sincerity of faith and love is testified to through their response to fleshly temptations and worldly people. And so as Jesus teaches his disciples about his kingdom and what is true of citizens therein and how they must live, see that he is also preparing them to go and walk distinctively as they proclaim his distinctive and unique kingdom and salvation. And we find this wonderfully in the verses of our text today. Let's look at Christ's words regarding his people being the salt of the earth. In verse 13, us being the light of the world. In verses 14 and 15, and his call for us to shine that light in verse 16. So he begins in verse 13a by saying that very thing, you are the salt of the earth. Now, as as we think more about Christ's proclamation regarding what his disciples are as the salt of the earth, it's helpful to see this being laid on the foundation of the Beatitudes. Don't miss that. His words here are intentionally laid on the foundation of the Beatitudes. This is what Christians are and what we are to do. And as Christ ended the Beatitudes in verses 10 through 12, revealing his blessing upon the persecuted, his disciples now being told that they were the salt of the earth would do so much more to encourage them in their coming sufferings. Think about that. It was of great support to know that though they would be treated with contempt, though they would be greatly mistreated, spat upon, beaten, chased, sought to be killed, yet they were blessed to be blessings to the world, even in suffering. And that really is a big message here. We see the blessings of the Beatitudes, and now we see Christ saying, you are the salt of the earth. In a few moments, verses later, you are the light of the world. Therefore, go and let that light shine. We are blessed to be blessings. As it was true that the prophets were salt in Canaan, so it would be true that Christ's disciples on the mountain, who, who would be his sent apostles, would be salt even more broadly to the whole earth, for that's where the gospel was to go. They would be salt to the whole earth, and keep in mind that as Christ's proclamation was to his apostles, it also applies to us today. When Jesus says that his people are the salt of the earth, what qualities or or what purposes of salt is he referring to here? 
Well, there are many references to salt in the Bible, but, but here are three to consider regarding this verse. First, salt is known for its distinctive flavor. When you taste food, you can tell if it's been salted, can't you? Unless you have no taste buds or no nose like your pastor, and then it's hard. But generally speaking, you can taste whether something's been salted. It doesn't matter really what kind of salt was used, you can tell. And maybe even you can tell from the nuance of the flavor what particular kind of salt it is, right? In Job 6.6, Job asks the question, can flavorless food be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? Beloved, the answer is that it could be, but as the difference between flavor and flavorless is important when we think about food, it's also important when you consider spiritual impact for Christ and his kingdom purposes. But secondly, and and quite importantly, Salt is also a powerful preservative. In Numbers 18, verse 19, we find God gave the the heave offerings to his people to offer to him as an everlasting covenant of salt. Maybe you haven't read that passage before. Maybe you haven't heard that term before. But hear it here today and consider it. Moses used this term to describe the eternal nature of God's covenant with his people. Well-preserved, a covenant of salt lasts forever. But secondly, note also what was required in the grain offering in Leviticus 2.13. And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And so why was salt offered with the offering? It was a preserving agent that symbolized God's covenant. Covenant faithfulness and the eternal and everlasting nature of the covenant was evident, was symbolized, was presented over and over again by the people as they prepared and offered their offerings to the Lord according to his instruction. But thirdly, beloved, salt is an effective antiseptic. Maybe some of you mamas out there, ladies especially, maybe some of you men even know this to be true as you consider different remedies for different things. Salt purifies and it disinfects. This is what the Lord described to Jerusalem through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 16, verse 4. As he said, as for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. Beloved, Jesus' proclamation that we are the salt of the earth points us to our preserving purpose as those who seek to hinder the world's corruption. Though the disciples on the mountain were few in number, and though we even be few in number, 
As we walk in godliness, proclaiming the gospel of Christ, the Spirit makes us a powerful force in pushing back the gates of hell as good is preserved and evil is restrained and shunned in the world. Tell me again why the church is to pull back and not be concerned about our influence in the world? No. We are to be salty preservatives in the world. This is what we're being taught here. Dr. R.C. Sproul even rightly said in his commentary on Christians in the world in his Reformation Study Bible, in referring to Christians being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, he made this closing comment. As Christians thus fulfill their vocation, they will transform the cultures around them. This is the natural effect of Christians living the Christian life in the world, of the church going forth as salt and light in the world. It has effect by the grace and work of God. But further, there is great importance for the salt to remain salty and flavorful, the Lord says. And therefore, daily diligence and study and prayer and growth and holiness is greatly needed. We're exhorted to this, we're called to this, we're commanded to this in other parts of Scripture. We see this to be a regular message to the believer through Paul's epistles and otherwise. Here is the Lord saying, be mindful of your flavor. Be mindful of your saltiness. For indeed, it is tragic if the opposite is true. Look at verse 13b. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Beloved, Jesus again presses here the cost of discipleship. See that? We see the cost of discipleship being brought up time and again in these early chapters of Matthew. We see the cost of discipleship, even in the fruit that is displayed in the Beatitudes, right? Even in 10 through 12, where we see the blessing upon the persecuted. We know the cost of discipleship is that we are going to be persecuted. We are going to suffer for Christ. But beloved, if professing believers lose their distinctive fruit described in the Beatitudes, They become ineffective and worthless. That's what Christ is pointing us to here. Tasteless meat can be flavored, but flavorless salt can't be re-seasoned. Therefore, the only thing to be done with this is to throw it out. You've got to get more salt. But who are the ones that lose their flavor? In the event that any of you would wonder in hearing these words, well, then is it true that I could possibly lose my salvation? Be mindful here. Who are the ones that lose their flavor? Jesus is referring to those who are truly unbelievers, and that becomes manifest and evident in their lives. They're truly unbelievers like Judas, who justly will be blown away as the chaff 
those who are expelled from the church and the communion of the faithful, again, because that becomes evident in their life. But by the work of grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, beloved, as the Spirit is sanctifying us according to the will of God, we keep our salt. In fact, our salt grows in its flavor and develops and deepens in its flavor, even as these fruits of the beatitude, the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of everything that the Lord calls and blesses his people with grow and deepen and strengthen and are a part of our more and more robust walk and life. Beloved, Jesus wants his disciples to count the cost and to keep our salt no matter what. And by his grace and by his preserving grace, we will. But he further says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, beloved, light has many purposes, doesn't it? It illuminates walking paths and reveals things that are in dark places. It it exposes things for what they really are. For in the shadows, we may think and we may wonder, is, is that what that truly is? Sometimes we may wake up half asleep in the night and we see something and we get scared and we're wondering, kids, you may relate to this, right? Even some of the adults, I know I do. Um, but you see the shadow and you're like, wait a minute, what is that? I can't quite see what that is. But yet, when you turn on the light, ah, that's what it is. Okay. It's all clear. It exposes things for what they really are. The light of Christ shines into hearts to expose sin, to teach truth, to comfort the saint. Light also attracts things as it serves as a beacon in the darkness. And as Jesus says that we are the light of the world, he points to the fruit of our being transformed by knowing and growing in Christ, who is the light of the world. We are lights shining the light. He's pointing to our being transformed by our knowing God's glory in Jesus. The fruit of our lively faith then shines through our godly living and either repels those who hate Christ, who is the light, or attracts others to become worshipers of God. And we see this attraction to be true in Isaiah chapter 60, the first three verses where we read, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising." Beloved, we see wonderful things here, don't we? The light that arises and dispels the darkness, the light that goes forth to bring in all of his elect people in the world. John 12, verses 35 through 36, hear the words of Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, 
A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Here we see the gospel message proclaimed in both Old Testament and New Testament, the the wonderful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the wonderful call that goes forth into the ears and hearts of men and women while you still have the light. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And here in Matthew 5, We see that Jesus teaches more about what we are in him. And consider the the two illustrations that he gives. The first being a city on a hill. Here are men that he's called. Men that have seen the light, that have believed in the light, that are now sons of light. And now they're going to be sent forth as light bearers of the light. And so he wants to instill to them and instill to us today the importance of understanding the light that we are in our connection and union with him and the light that we are to bear. And so what is true of a city on a hill? It's visible for everyone to see, and it it really can't be hidden even if somebody tried. Some of you may be familiar with some of the back roads to various cities in Texas. And on some hilltops, you find houses. You see them there. You can't unsee them. On others, hotels or even winery buildings as you're taking some of the back roads in the hill country especially. All of which can be seen for miles. And and imagine this in this metaphor, a city on a hill, even more so, right? And this was true of Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And yet the light of Christ wouldn't shine from the temple, but rather through his people, through the church. Jesus teaches us here that his church is the new Jerusalem. And he confirms this to be true in his words even to the Samaritan woman in John 4, beginning in verse 21. You can turn with me there if you'd like. John 4, verse 21 Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You will worship what you do not, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him, as God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The light of Christ will go forth through his people, through the church. Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 and 10, we read this. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, 
I will show you the bride, the, the Lamb's wife. And we know from Ephesians chapter 5 that that bride is who? It's the church. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Beloved, whereas light from a city on a hill cannot be hidden, Jesus goes on to speak of one that could but shouldn't be in his next illustration. Look at verse 15. Nor do they light a lamp but put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So my friends, lamps have a clear purpose, don't they? We don't buy them to put them in the closet. They're not used. That's not their purpose. That's not their use. They illuminate the darkness in the house or in the place where they stand as they are rightly placed on a lampstand. Christ's disciples were lamps that He would light. See that? He wouldn't confine or cover them, but rather send them forth as lights not only to Israel, but to all of the world. And further, the churches, as we see in Revelation 1 verse 20, the churches were the golden lampstands that these lights were placed in so that their light would be diffused throughout the world. And so Christ's light continues to go to the world through his church today, beloved. And so now understanding and giving them this instruction that you are the salt of the earth, you, you are the light of the world, now therefore this is what you must do. We've seen the indicative, here comes the imperative. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Beloved, having been lit by Christ, his disciples were called to shine that light so that the light of Christ shining through them would have effectual work in the hearts and lives of many. Here's the call, and it's not optional, beloved. Christ doesn't say, go and shine your light. If you want to, if you're feeling like it that day, do it. No, he says, go and shine the light brightly. Shine it. Day in and day out, this is who you are, and this is what you are now sent to do. Let your light so shine like a beacon city and a lamp to the world, beloved. And, and what is light shining to look like? Well, again, it's, it's a benefit to see this passage built on the foundation of the Beatitudes as bearing fruit because we're in union with the Son. We're blessed by the Spirit. We do these things to the glory of the Father. And this is what Christ gets at in verse 16, doesn't he? This is the purpose, ultimately. Indeed, we're in union with the Son, blessed by the Spirit, to the glory of the Father. John 15, verse 8 says this, and these are Jesus' words, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. 
Part of the cost of discipleship, beloved, part of the benefit of discipleship is not just enduring the hard things, but it's also doing the wonderful things that we are blessed to do and gifted by God to do. We're regularly reminded in the scriptures of what these things are and our, and our need to have great passion and zeal and commitment in doing them, to be faithful like the one who is perfectly faithful, our head, our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Go and bear the good fruit. Go and show the good works that are from a lively faith to the world. It's easy to say, and it's, it's a common thing for us to wrestle in our flesh. We're tired today, we're, we're irritated, we're upset, we're, we're in conflict, we're, we're, we're crippled by sin or despair or other things, and, and that fruit just ain't low-hanging or on the surface. But nonetheless, it is always spirit-wrought. And those, as you are called by the living God to serve him in these ways and to bear such fruit in these ways, you better believe that the Spirit is working in you to do so, even to get past these obstacles that you find daily in your mind and in your heart. Because he will receive the glory, beloved. He will receive glory. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we also read this. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And we see that here in Christ's words, don't we? Peter was teaching and, and really preaching Christ's words here as well. Right? Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So my friends, as Christ called his mountainside disciples to walk according to and to bear the, the fruit of the Beatitudes, he calls you to do the same seeing that the beatitude life is different from the world, but it's one that is called to impact the world. It's different, and its purpose is impact, not retreat and not withdrawal. As Christ has made and sent you to be salt, be salty and keep being salty. Be mindful and careful to be preservatives in this world as he preserves you and uses you to be so. And as he has made and sent you to be light, shine bright and even brighter for your king. Don't give in to the doubts and the fear or, or cowardice even to shine the light of Christ by covering your own lamp. We oftentimes are very mindful and, and even uh, talk a lot in life and conversation about what other people are doing or about what other people are trying to do against us. And all of those things are quite valid in many regards. But what are you doing in regards to your own light shining? Are you pulling back and in essence covering your own lamp? Are you putting it under a basket? 
Don't give in to those who desperately want to turn the light off and snuff it out. For there are many out there who do. Many out there, as we know and as we've seen, that come against. And they either try to oppress, persecute, and bring you down. Or they try to get inside your head and inside your life so that you are corrupted from the inside out. And the light goes out that way as well. So therefore, tend your wick. Keep your lamp well oiled in the word. And shite brighter into dark hearts, showing them the way that they too may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. Praise God for his word. Let's, let's pray.